This is Bonjour Chai, the This Land is My Land edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzfobi. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk with Jesse Brown of Canada Land about how to seek truths and draw lines through the fog of war. Does protesting Israeli policies outside Jewish community institutions cross a line? Can any act of anti-Semitism be dismissed by saying it's about Israel? Stay tuned for all that. Just before we get started, though, I wanted to let our Toronto listeners know that we will be doing a live event at the Lay Apostles Theatre this coming week. We are excited to be launching Holocaust Education Week in Toronto, and we will be speaking to author Michael Frank about his book, 100 Saturdays. Tickets are available online at the Holocaust Museum website, which we will link to in the show notes. I would love to see you there. That is this Wednesday, November 1st at 7.30. Tickets available online. And now, on to the show. Phoebe, how are you doing this week? All right, how are you, Avi? I'm, uh, you know, I'm okay. It's been a, it's been an interesting few weeks, uh, both globally but also personally. <laughs> and why is the why uh, pers- globally? We know uh, why personally. I've actually moved. Um, I've moved out of Canada. Uh, my wife got a, a job, and I decided to follow her along, as is a good idea when you are married to somebody. Um, and I've moved to the uh, northern suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, uh, in the U.S. Uh, for those of you who uh, Canadians familiar know with that country, <laughs> um, but I am still committed to this show, and uh, uh, we will talk about it more extensively later, I'm sure. But uh, my life has been packing and unpacking boxes for the past few weeks. That's why I missed last week. Um, and that has uh, become my life. I'm sure you'll be unpacked eventually, but yeah, moving moving's a lot. Uh, eventually, so, yeah. 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 And now we're so now we're an American in Canada, and a Canadian in America. Although I am actually also Canadian now. So yes, um, yeah. I I'll let you know when I get my if if and ever I whenever <laughs> I get my dual citizenship. But I don't think that'll happen. Um, but I'm uh, I'm here now. I'm around. I'm doing my thing. And uh, is the is the shopping a lot better in America? Like the, the choice? I don't know because I haven't been out to a store lately. <laughs> it's been a week of just nonstop um, there, uh, like home unpacking. I've gone to Home Depot a lot. Um, I'm told that the shopping has a lot of choices. There's a lot targets. more stuff. I will are, are there targets? There are many targets. As there, I, I don't want to go into the double Trader, entendre. Trader's there. Joe? Is there Trader Joe's there? There are many, yes. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I'll report back. I will do the full retail report um, when I am uh, I, I finally venturing waiting, out of it. I am impatiently waiting to find out all about it. Let's get to our main interview with Jesse Brown uh, right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So almost three weeks have passed since Hamas went on a rampage through Israel, and in the ensuing time, we have seen both deeper and deeper polarization and an attempt to shape the narrative on a minute-by-minute basis. This makes for an almost perfect storm of both misinformation and disinformation, and so in an attempt to make sense of some of this, we turn to a stalwart of combating misinformation and someone whose takes on the Jewish community are often as insightful as they are ignored by those who most need to hear them. Jesse Brown is the publisher of Canada Land and the host of its eponymous podcast. Jesse, welcome to Bonjour Chai, or should I say welcome? back. It's nice to be back. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that I'm seeing now more than ever is that people have become their own spin doctors, right? You can watch the news and decide on the spot, depending on whatever your preconceived notions are, what is actually being said. I don't think we should always be blaming the news media itself, for example. But for example, they're reporting about the Gaza hospital explosion. The news media often receives the brunt of the ire of both sides of any contentious story. How do we as news media, and I'm not necessarily including myself all the time, but we are part of a news media organization. How do we do a better job of telling the story without telling people what to think about the story? Well, I think that the facts have to come first. And that's an easy thing to say, except for the fact that the facts are hard to come by. It's uh, it's hard to get firsthand reporting from Gaza. Uh, it, it's uh, the fog of war is real. 
as you say, the efforts to spin information, counter information, contradict information. Uh, there is an information war that's being waged by both sides. And there is such a passionate appetite for evidence that will support one narrative or the other that things spin wildly out of control and are, are you know, are seen by millions and millions days before we are able to analyze. And, and there is a growing skill set and community of people. I'm not one of them. Uh, OSINT is what it's called, open source intelligence, who are not on the ground, but who are diligently analyzing multiple, you know, video files from different angles and, and comparing and contrasting and, and, and looking at maps and uh, really trying to figure out if official narratives um, could be true. And, you know, over time, we see things like the New York Times back away from its early um, framing, which put an incredible amount of credibility in Hamas's claims, and then changed their headline as that day went on, uh, and then ultimately issue something of a correction mea culpa, saying we put too much credibility in these claims. And then uh, just uh, on Wednesday of this week, uh, finally, there's uh, an analysis that I think will please neither side, but it does offer the Times put out, uh, you know, a, a detailed analysis that says some of the information that Israel put out uh, attributing the blast to a specific failed Hamas missile is not accurate, which does not mean that Israel was lying. And maybe they thought it was true, but that the timing of that particular missile, the footage that Israel released, it could not have been that missile, um, which is not to say that it could not have been a different Hamas missile. Uh, so when you are super responsible and diligent about the facts in a situation like this, you'll often arrive at not knowing. And where I'm at with this is not necessarily – trying to figure out how can I know more because from where I'm standing, I mean, I publish Canada land. I don't have a bureau in, and even those who have bureaus in Israel often don't have feet on the ground in Gaza. And even if you do have feet on the ground, they, they can only see from their perspective. I'm trying to figure out how we deal with, with, with not knowing. And, and people are very uncomfortable right now with uncertainty and not knowing because these narratives become the basis for what happens next and for how we feel about things. And, and people want the, the, the facts to fall in their direction. Uh, so I'm just trying to be – I'm really trying to be thoughtful about every communication I put out uh, because the last thing that anybody should, should want to do is inflame things right now mm -hmm. further. I remember uh... – when I was in graduate school, I had a professor who got uh, angry at me, uh, mock angry, but still it was, uh, you know, he, he was explaining to me how like my whole like yeshiva education and my whole religious upbringing was so focused on harmonizing texts and, and always looking for ways in which the texts are going to work well together. And he's like, texts don't always work well together. Stop trying to look for answers to the story and that create a story. Always look for problems. And it's okay to live with problems in the text and just leave it at that. And I think that as humans, we're fundamentally uncomfortable with not having a narrative, especially not having a narrative that fits the narrative that we want it to fit. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and I think that... <sighs> You know, there's this really stark dichotomy between these incompatible narratives and the problems that we live in um, and the practicality, the physicality, uh, the reality of just human lives uh, and, and, and the physical space and the physical organisms themselves uh, being destroyed. W what are we fighting here in Canada? What are we engaged in here? Because I, 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 I think that what we say to each other – and whether this union comes out on this side or, or not or this politician, few things matter less to the conflict as to which positions we take or what we say on our social media. Or, but meanwhile, it's rending our relationships apart in, in these horrible ways and it's, uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to see – You know, I can take the trolls or, or, or just strangers but when you know people and you've worked with them and, and – you, you hear them sharing or encouraging messaging that seems to dehumanize or, or deny things you know to be true. Uh, 
it, it, it hurts. It hurts a lot. Um, Do you want to give some that- concrete examples of the sorts of, not the people, of course, but of the sorts of things where this comes up? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this these days. Um, you know, you brought it to mind, Avi, with, with respect to the, you know, the, the idea of, of, of incompatible narratives that can't harmonize. So this week, I'm, I'm, I'm a little rattled because I, I broke my own rule of just like not weighing in unless my job forces me to when I saw on social media that uh, a protest that had been organized to protest, um, you know, a, a, a pro-free Palestine a ceasefire it seems like a perfectly legitimate cause for people to take to the streets to protest. And the target seemed perfectly legitimate to me to go um, and protest outside of Christia Freeland's office. And a day or two later, photos emerged that, you know, well, where is Christia Freeland's office? It's right, it's right across the street in Toronto from the Jewish Community Center. And I know this Jewish Community Center. It's a place where um, children go to learn about Judaism. It's it's Hader. It's uh, it was a day school, not anymore. It's a daycare currently. It's also a place of worship. Um, it's a swimming place. A big. It's like a. It's like a Y. Also, it's it's a big thing. The, yeah, it's, it's also yeah, just a community just a center. Big, yeah, yeah, for, like for the a, community. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the protest, at least at one moment, turned towards the Jewish community center and the protesters, unless this photograph is just uh, – I, I, I'm trying to imagine a way in which this photograph could be somehow misleading me. But the protesters are turned and their signs are turned towards the community center and the megaphone is turned and, and the people's attention is turned towards and it. And it very much seems as if at one point a large group of these people, if not all – I don't know if all of them were, but a large group of protesters were protesting – the Jewish community center. And I know how mobs or crowds can kind of – it becomes disorganized and inchoate and, and uh, one person's chant can – you know, like there's a moment like that and maybe people corrected themselves. I, 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 I'm referring more to what happened afterwards because I, I – and I tried to just hew to the facts and I tweeted out against my better judgment, this is not – this is not the Israeli consulate. This is not Christia Freeland's office. This is a Jewish community center. That's all I said. And uh, predictably, a lot of people, liar, Zionist liar, this, you know, it just happened to be in front of the Jewish community center. This was actually Christia Freeland's office that was being protested. And, you know, it doesn't really bother me that people were making those accusations. Why doesn't that bother you? That seems bothersome. No? (laughs) It's just so incredibly predictable, okay. and 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 it's yeah. uh, you know I, I understand I understand that that uh, and and I you know th- like I think that that people involved in those protests uh, I, I I might not use this language to describe it but th- but there's no there's no denying that like w- there is uh, an incredible amount of death happening and people who feel like all they can do is take to the streets to to, to oppose okay. what's happening yeah. in Gaza. So anyhow, passions are inflamed is all I'm saying. What I was taken aback by was a number of people who I, I know and have worked with not arguing with me that the protesters were protesting the Jewish Community Center, but instead arguing that that is a legitimate target. Yes, that is the thing <laughs> I wanted to talk about because that is the turn I have seen all of this taking. And it's something I'm very familiar with from like my knowledge of just how it's gone in France in the last uh, few decades, where um, sort of anything and just in general, it seems like there's a more in Europe it's been for a while now that anything anti-Jewish can get a kind of, it's actually about Palestine spin, even if it clearly isn't, even if it's arguably harmful to Palestinians. Like if, you know, like putting a swastika on a synagogue, how does that help Palestinians? Obviously not at all. Um, but what I've seen is that that seems to be migrating to North America. And the specific example I'm thinking of is this Cafe Landwer um, incident that I was just reading about in uh, the Maple on the website. Um it's a, a restaurant that already clearly anticipates anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism, however you want to put it, and I'll parse that in a minute, but um, in that it calls its cuisine Mediterranean, which I always find interesting, like the Mediterranean couscous, Mediter- anything Israeli is Mediterranean, lest anybody not want to touch anything to do with Israel. But anyway, the idea that har- that harassing people eating in a Jewish cafe is actually really, it's really because you care so much about Palestinians that you would do that, because if you really look it up, the owner is actually Israeli. And so it's like this whole like, long, convoluted thing. It's like, no, this is a Jewish restaurant. 
if you really, or if you're such a purist that any Jew who has any connection to Israel, either by happenstance, because they happen to be like Israeli, they may, you know, hate Netanyahu, but they happen to be Israeli, they may have Israeli family, they may feel a sort of cultural, personal affinity to Israel, whatever their politics, if, if any Jew in the diaspora who has anything to do with Israel is a fair target for the minute they're targeted or even killed, then, well, you know what? It's really part of the fight to free Palestine. First of all, it isn't. It isn't part of the fight to free Palestine. And I, but, but the, the bigger part of this, though, that I want to get to is I really think that this chain, this ought to really impact how we talk about this whole, like, sort of when the people who are really talking all the time about fighting anti-Semitism, I don't know if they, like, understand what it currently is in North America. And that's my rant. Sorry. <laughs> Um, well, they don't. They, they don't understand it the way that, that that you do, and the way that you just described it, and that's the incompatibility of the narratives. You know, uh, you can. I think it's worthwhile to read that piece in the Maple and to read what I agree are convoluted justifications because I want to understand what we're witnessing happen in real time. Oh, sure, I think everybody. I link to it on my Twitter. I think people should read it to understand that mindset yeah. for sure. No, I'm not saying that you're suggesting yeah. otherwise. Yeah. I, 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 I. Um, you know, and and not to to you know lend any credibility to it, but but my understanding of what they're saying is that uh, there's a long established BDS movement that boycotts uh, businesses. There's a lot of like what what we've been doing this forever, and uh, this is this is an Israeli owned business, and there's connections with the founder to the IDF, and it's a perfectly again a, a legitimate target to not that, eat at to not eat. At. I've never been to Cafe Lab. To, to, to not eat. At, <laughs> you know what right. I mean, like who? Uh, but but, but, yeah. but that is you know to, not to get jargony, but that is to gaslight that something new has happened here. That this is not something we've seen before in Toronto, where you fine boycott whoever you want to boycott, but for 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 protesters to take to the streets to to uh, confront and protest should be protest is against something. It is it is it is physical and it, and it appears angry and you know so for a group of people to angrily uh, confront the diners, what 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 we're what we're building here. Is a justification and a rationalization to target Jews, and and that's how we. Those it's are the fully, words that it's we. It's been accepted. It has already, I think, been kind of accepted that any if if you can twist it to say that it that it's anti-Zionist, it's fine, and you can basically always do that because virtually, like nearly all Jews are some sort of pro-Israel, not necessarily right-wing, but some sort of positive feelings towards Israel, therefore Zionist. But if we want to, you know, I, I agree that it is twisted, but. I, I, I think that the – look, we are we are having a conversation right now and I think it's a good conversation to have and I want to have these conversations right now. I want to talk to other Jews about this. I, 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 a lot of it is just about catharsis and feeling community. But this is a bubble, right? Um, the, 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 the operative thing for me is like is there some way – I don't know about harmonizing these narratives but the, people are locked in – to a narrative where I don't feel like people believe that with intentionality they're trying to find a way to target Jews. What I want to get across to people is I, I don't care what your intent is. The outcome of these justifications and rationalizations is that you are targeting Jews. If if the JCC is a fair target because they raised money for the walkathon or something, if that makes the JCC a fair target, then every synagogue in this country and every Jewish day school in this country and every place where Jews congregate to eat a bagel, you are – So we're France a, basically now. I mean that's that's what this does. Look, yeah. yeah. In effect, yeah. in effect, you have to understand that you have crossed a line here where I, I know – and I, I have said you can – and I have criticized Israel that you can criticize Israel without criticizing Jews. That is a possible – of course that's a possible thing to do. But I, I would but go I'll, even one step further and to say that you can be anti-Zionist and yes. still not be anti-Semitic. But the problem that you're highlighting is that at the end of the day um, – the vast majority of people don't believe in that distinction anymore, don't see that distinction as valid. To them, anti-Zionism 
and is does mean people of people that are of people that are uh, protesting for freeing Palestine right now Mm -hmm. are basically saying, well, anybody that is Jewish is basically a Zionist, and therefore I have the right to target Jews as a result of that. You will not find that's not. I said the vast majority. What do you, you Avi? What what is what is anti-Zionism? I think is an important thing to talk about because I think I saw somebody recently saying that uh, a, a prominent journalist, I won't name her right now, although I probably have on the podcast before, saying that she's not a Zionist because she's opposed to all theocracies. So, which just well, seemed like I think there are a lot of different definitions. I think if you if you support the right of some of a Jewish state in that in part of that area, even in very restricted borders, even not in its current borders, even if you hate Netanyahu, you're still some sort of Zionist. So to, to the two points here, um, I what I, I like the way that Jeremy Appel, when he came on the show a while ago, uh, defined it. He said he was a culturally Zionist in that he believed that he loved the culture of Israel and the the people and stuff like that, but politically he was anti. Zionist and he didn't believe what was going on with the with the state and the government and the policies was something that he wanted to abide by. So that was like I thought a fair way of like of framing that. And I just want to hold that a little silly to me. But yeah, go on. I want to I want to just put that there. But then the other thing, and I think you said that that theocracy, and I think that that's the line that is actually the thing that is harmonizing Jesse, but is incredibly difficult for people to think and accept is that at the end of the day, there are religions here, right? When you hear a Palestinian with a rock, shoot, seeing a rocket go overhead and saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, he's doing this, but not because he's saying that like, you know, Israel as a country is bad. He's saying Israel, the land of the Jews is bad. And Jews, when they go and say, this is our land, it's because they really believe that God gave them this land. There is Do you think th- all Zionists are, I mean, how I did think- Herzl feel about that? Do you think Herzl was motivated uh, I, I by think God? Herzl, I actually think Herzl was in the minority. And that's why Herzl was willing to take other countries, potentially. But mm-hmm. I think that the people that go and say, this land is 3,000 years old and it belongs to us because of that, there's some deep faith that, that connects so much Judaism to that land. And nobody wants to accept and recognize that there are religions that are, are at war here. And that's a lot messier than just saying these are two countries that are fighting for a I think a lot of, of people recognize that this is... I think a lot of people I see I would counter this and say that I think a lot of people see it as only like Jewish versus Muslim and imagine that it's much more religious than it is. I mean there are obviously very religious people involved but not exclusively and it is political. Uh, I also. see you smiling Jesse you have like so much to say. <laughs> I have so little to say. I'll go get a sandwich and you two can figure out a good definition for yeah. Zionism. Tell us how Cafe Land works. I, I, I only want to return to something Avi said before, which is that the vast majority of people, the, the, the line has erased that between anti-Zionism and anti-Jewish. I want to tell you, I, I, I think you would have trouble finding one person at the pro-Palestine uh, uh, rallies who will go on the record and say out loud something against Jews. I think you'll have difficulty. It is, it is simply not been my experience covering this or talking to people. The, the belief that they are not striking out against Jews is nearly unanimous. Okay, That and, has and been we... historically the belief of so oh, yeah. many like, – like, Sure. With the exception sure. of the like French official like in the late 1800s anti-Semitic yeah, yeah, yeah. political parties, everybody says they're not <laughs> – against Jews, but like there was somebody, yeah, go on, go on. Sure, sure. They're against rootless cosmopolitans or I understand the history. We might understand this better than the people who are engaging in this understanding. And I I don't necessarily think it's because they're uh, lying. Uh, I I, I think that they believe that, right? And, And if we're talking about these incompatible narratives, that is the incompatibility that our job here in Canada is to try to find, if not harmony between these narratives, I, like like right now, everything I see through this lens of these incompatible narratives, right now I see Jews in a moment of profound grief and triggered trauma where everything we've been told since we were kids, it could happen again, it will happen again, and when it happens again, your neighbor won't care. And we're like in shock because it, it's it's happening. And at this moment of our grief, we're looking at these protesters and saying, oh, my God, how could they not recognize – how could they come to where my kids go at this particular moment? But we are in a different narrative. They are in a narrative where Jewish grief is a precursor to Palestinian death. And that's – right? They're in a narrative where when Jews start talking about the memories of the Holocaust, that's when you got to be worried because that that, that 
comes before a much greater death toll on the, so we are we are not speaking the same language right now you know i think you're 100% uh, right i I, I was having this conversation with somebody this week, and they couldn't believe that I was in a position to say, "You can be in a in a at a peace festival at a, at a music festival and assume that everything is great in the world, and all of a sudden death and destruction reigns on you." And the person for who death and destruction is ra- is doing the is doing the reigning of death and destruction is somebody who has been seething mad with anger for decades. And yes, they've been planning this, but it's not like they just out of the blue decided one day, hey, we're going to go and kill a bunch of Jews at a music festival. We are, we are planning this because, because we have been displaced, we have been murdered, we have been under the thumb of somebody, and that is the belief that they have, and that, that is, it's okay to acknowledge that that person believes something that makes you the enemy. Okay, so I think, I, I, I guess this is where, like, I've said this before, and it feels very strange to say it now in light of all of the news, I don't think that... Palestinian anger at Israel is anti-Semitism. I don't think that that's the right framework to understand it. I think there is contested land, obviously. I think that that's um, just a geopolitical fact. Where I do see anti-Semitism is when Westerners with no particular skin in the game throw on the keffiyeh because they're just delighted for finally a chance to be like, fuck Jews, basically. I, that's I, I that's that, where I see anti-Semitism sometimes entering into. Not always. I think there are people who are like actually just genuinely moved by the news they see from Gaza. I think that also is part of it. Yeah, complicated. I, I, it's very complicated. And when I think about the Westerners, I I I I, I have complicated thoughts. Like. Uh, I think that there are no shortage of people who do have skin in the game, who either have family uh, or or are connected to Palestinian diaspora, and 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 I I, I want to ascribe they they feel more people who are afraid for their families or their relatives in Gaza right now have more in common with diaspora Jews than anybody else of course right? I, uh, totally. and, and yeah. a lot of those people are 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 traumatized in a very similar way as we are at this moment and 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 those people are at those protests and then when it comes to uh westerners who have taken up this cause uh I think it's important to try to figure out what they're thinking and and um, I don't think that it started with anti-Semitism and then for the majority of them and then they found this vessel. I think that anti-Semitism Strong is – Strong per- disagree, but go on. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 which is not to say that I don't think it's anti-Semitic. I, I, I think okay. that uh, a lot of people are, who are involved are involved in various you know, anti-colonial and progressive causes and anti-imperial, anti-American causes. Uh, and I think that uh, once you've been immersed for many, many years into an anti-Zionist narrative, I think that like you can – it's almost like that's the mechanism through which anti-Semitism can can be trained. Using very different words for it, but you you arrive at the same place, you know. Um, but but I don't necessarily believe, and I don't think it's constructive um, until I find evidence that this is like for most people, this is like oh, I'm going to dress my anti-Semitism up in this because this is socially acceptable. I, I I know that that's a popular narrative, but I think that there's a lot of young people who get involved in these politics who don't have any opinion one way or the other about Jews, and even Jewish people get involved in these politics and find themselves like you know brick by brick uh, building this this narrative, um, which which I think on the other side does does come out as anti-Semitism. And I think they uh, sometimes imagine that they will be then considered the exceptions because if if it's anti if it's mere anti-Zionism to hate Jews who are at all Zionist, if you're the least Zionistic Jew of them all, you'll probably be fine. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, I think unless you get a, a bagel at the wrong place. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of people rebelling against their parents in, in the mix. There's a lot of stuff going on. But but rather than assign. A su- like intent to people where I don't, I don't know what's in their hearts and minds. Uh, I don't think I, I know what's in hearts and minds either. I mean, I see this as useful for just understanding what's going on and wrapping your head around it. I don't see this as that that I'm going to say X is an anti-Semite. There's no use of that. I, I don't think Phoebe, you can know hearts and minds. Yeah. Your, you, by your extension, then no Westerner should ever get involved in any sort of human rights struggle. You should say that by saying that I am against the, the Uyghur genocide, I am being anti-Chinese. Um, and that's not right because most people are just saying I care about the Uyghurs. I don't not care about the Chinese people. There's this. I, I'm thinking about a modern Western, modern European history and the Holocaust and pogroms and all of this and expulsions of Jews and 
just the whole history of like but people where don't know white people stuff. come from. No, they may not know it, know it, but these things get passed down. And I think this idea that, oh, well, after 1945, anti-Semitism went away is a bit silly. Like it, it does these things. First of all, it persisted all in all sorts of ways in the mid-century. And I don't think I don't think that these people people still really hate Jews. Like I, I my life is ma- apart from my CJN work is mainly not around Jews. Most of my life is not around Jews. And, and a lot of people really do hate Jews. Yeah. People find all kinds of creative new ways to hate Jews. And people have historically found ways to hate Jews without thinking that they're hating Jews. And I, and I, I, I think that that's, I, you know, it, it's a, it's a baffling and fascinating phenomenon over the course of centuries. And I think there's an element of it right now. I'm like, and, and, and yet I, I, like I'm trying to find some space to afford as much good faith as I can to people who are doing things that I find abhorrent. Uh, I'm trying to find as much uh, space like, OK, I, I, uh, I think this person doesn't necessarily understand the extent to which they've just re-traumatized and harmed people. I like – if you say that you're trying to save lives in Gaza, maybe that is part of what's motivating you. And maybe like like if that's where – if I can accept that, then maybe there is a way to have a conversation with my neighbors because I know that my family in Israel will never really be safe until conditions are better for Palestinians, right? Mm-hmm. So so maybe there is some future what, that can – But can I just ask, when, when you say that you're trying to think of it – think generously. I can understand that if it's people protesting at a big rally or on a campus or something like that. I can understand that if it's somebody, you know, tweeting free Palestine or something like that. But if it's, I'm thinking of this this incident in New York at Cooper Union, where these Jewish uh, college students were like, trapped in a library or something, I don't know, or or this Cafe Landwehr thing, all of these incidents where Jews are genuinely like physically threatened or people associated with Jewishness are physically threatened. That's where my generosity towards these views starts to go away. Because I would like to see as few people dead on all sides as possible. I would like some sort of, you know, I don't have the military strategy for doing this. You know, I'm not that sort of expert or whatever. But I I just have trouble seeing that as I I see that as just ramping up a violence, not as um, an anti-violence. I I might understand that there's emotions behind it, but like I I just I lose any generosity towards people like that. And all I just want to say is basically like the sort of fuck the fuck off type thing is more my take on it. I I, I don't disagree. And and it's sort of like, you know, knowing where that line is of uh, trying to trying to think of things sympathetically or or generously. And then like, well, that. That is the Jewish Community Center, and that's when I spoke up. Mm-hmm. And then, not to say "fuck off," but to say, "Do you?" I'm still trying to communicate. I'm like, "Do you understand what that is? Do you understand what you just did?" Do you and understand I think they the... do, and they think it's Zionist. They think that the JCC is a Zionist entity, and and maybe they're right, and maybe anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism aren't as easily separated as all that. I mean, that seems like another possibility. If you define Zionism as thinking Israel is an existing country that that can go on existing perhaps with different borders, then, you know, then you're a Zionist, right? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. I, look, I, you know, I, I recently had a conversation with Emily Nicola on, on, on my podcast and, and she said something that I've been thinking about ever since, which is we hear, you know, is peace possible? Has this destroyed for the hope for peace? And we always think of peace as some far off, maybe possible, maybe impossible thing that will happen in Israel. And she said, my question is – my answer to that question is itself a question. What – are you acting in the spirit of peace here? Is the last thing you said in the spirit of peace here? So the type of communication that I'm trying to avoid is one where I communicate like trying to feed the passions of like, oh my god, does anybody else get as angry as I feel about the fact that they're now protesting the Jewish community center or they're going, oh my god, look what they just did. Um, even, even though I really want that echo of understanding from somebody else, that I'm not going out of my mind here that something awful did just happen. But that type of communication is not – it's not communication of peace. It's a communication of who are my allies and let's together get 
indignant and angry about what they just did. So the only communication that I'm trying, like beyond just like my, my role in trying to like set out uh, a verified record of facts as a journalist, I, I, I stepped outside of that because I, I hope that some people who are involved in the pro-Palestine movement might see that and understand that from within a different bubble, within a different narrative, they just did cross a line. And 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 uh, I, I did get calls from people who were involved in that organization trying to separate themselves from it and say, well, actually, uh, I, I was informed that the, the, the former board member of the group was now a former board member who was uh, organizing that rally. That, you know, that kind of dialogue where we're setting those boundaries, where, where a group says, I, like, I just want you to know that wasn't our group. We're no longer with that person. That's an important conversation to have because mm-hmm. that is a recognition that what I'm saying isn't like, oh, fuck off. That's a perfectly legitimate target. That is somebody calling me and saying, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. So I – I want to ask you something that's related to this, um, and it's about inflaming passions, and it's about looking for, like you said, the good as opposed to the opposite. There are organizations, uh, there are advocacy organizations within the Jewish community, like um, Honest Reporting, there are organizations like that on the Palestinian side that for for years, and not just in times of war, but in times of relative peace, are scouring media and sending letter campaigns to CBC anytime they do something wrong, or that they perceive as doing something wrong. And I wonder how do we, I think that those types of organizations, I'll put my cards out there, are not looking to valorize, to say, hey, what is the other side? Maybe there's something here. Maybe there was a mistake. Maybe the other side actually has a point. Um, It's always about my narrative and how do I get my narrative across to a news organization? Um, There's got to be a better way than having this low-level simmering of passions always around on both sides saying, here's my narrative. I need my narrative out there. Um, there's got to be a better way to make sure that media, news media is doing, is, is getting the right message or doing something right without having this, which I think is uh, like Tinder to the fire when there's some sort of, you know, fire happening. It's these types of organizations that have been leaving things on the fire for so long that make, that cause issues. I, uh, you must have something to say about this. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I've been ranting. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like, you know, honest report. Like, so like I have, uh, you know, there's a history with any journalist who's ever touched this stuff in Canada and these organizations and like, I, you know, part of <laughs> to me, my produ- so bo- to my producer, you could just say, Avi says honest reporting Canada and Jesse goes off <laughs> instead of my long winded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, all you had to do was mention the, the, the name. Look, I think it's fine. I, there's so many different groups or peoples that have advocacy groups, you know, uh, and, and like it, it's, it's a perfectly, it's, it's not a nefarious, it's a fine thing to do. Uh, but it, like, except it, it that becomes, it delegitimizes the other narrative. It's doing exactly so the opposite what, of what you're saying is the most important thing we should be doing. That's right. Look, th- there's this battle that we have in Canada over which side is the media shittiest to. And uh, as a media reporter and media critic, people come to me with their receipts and say, look, here are 20 examples of the media being shitty to Palestinians. And they can prove it. They can prove it. You know, uh, the, the, the language used, the passive voice versus the active voice. Yeah, like, yeah, that, that is media bias against Palestinians. And then there is uh, just as long a file of the media being like, like it's, ultimately, the media – Case by case, story by story, fucks up all the time, has all kinds of bad tendencies. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not trying to shrug it off because it is my job is that it it does matter what the media says about these things and the language that we use. Um, But like like no one's going to win this fight of, uh, oh, the media is actually against my people. What I – I'm kind of stuck in with with groups like Honest Reporting and Siege and like like, uh, these media watchdog groups is this this weird – Action, reverse action thing where they uh, monitor aggressively, comprehensively. They're very good at it, you know, and and part of the problem is just how good they are at it. They uh, will – Push back if they feel like anything. They'll they'll kind of push back in, in their interpretation of what the media is saying, not just what the media is saying. And they'll use every means that is like I think you know legally and civilly available. They'll they'll call an editor, they'll call your boss, and they'll say I don't think your newspaper should be publishing these things. Right now, then on the other side of that, and, and you know like and it does make a difference because it, it just means that like. Reporters are incredibly careful because it's just like a story that you might have just filed and moved on to your next story. You're now defending in a meeting and then you have to – like it's – you do have to worry about what these groups might say. 
Um, and maybe that's good. You know, maybe that makes your journalism better. Um, but on the other end of it, what you get are like I had to correct a, a Palestinian pundit who was on my show saying, oh, these groups like they bully the media. They have undue influence on the media. And then she crossed the line and said, well, I think they give money to them. I'm like, no, they don't. They don't give money to the media. Like the, the idea that they've bought better coverage. You know, I'm like, look, there is there's another group that advocates uh, uh, for, for Muslim people when Muslim people are uh, written about in an unfavorable way. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's – I don't know. I haven't looked at the budgets to see which group has more money. But like what ends up happening is these groups are so diligent uh, – and I, I would say aggressive is a fair word – that it ends up fueling a narrative of Jewish media control. Uh, it ends up fueling the, the narrative that every newsroom is quaking in their boots because of some all-powerful Israel lobby. Well, what do you All make? Can I, can I just interrupt? I was just wondering what uh, – I feel like whenever there is an anti-Semitic incident, and I think this may be Canada and the U.S., I mean – I. I've historically, having only been Canadian for a few weeks, um, followed this more in the U.S. Where there's an anti- uh, yeah, Todaraba, as they say. Um, <laughs> but um, what I have found is there politicians or whoever will speak out about an anti-Semitic incident and say we do not stand for anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Now, I too do not stand for anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. But it just seems like there's something where Islamophobia is always mentioned when there's an anti-Semitic incident. I don't know if there's a corollary. I haven't studied this. Um, just something. Right. Do they do they also say that they're against anti-Semitism when they decry um, And I mean, I'm not even saying they should. I don't think they should in either direction. I think you can just say you're opposed to the hate thing that had just happened without it. Because I think this is, again, I think this was a good insight from Black Lives Matter that to say Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that that other lives don't matter. And I think that was yeah. a fair point. And I think one that paradoxically can be extended to all groups. You know, you can say so that. I, it's, yeah. yeah. But, that's you, but apt, you can't say that, all lives matter. Right. That's what right. I'm saying. That's what I'm talking so, about. So you're absolutely right that, that politicians, I think, are very careful that to, to not want to appear that uh, when they are decrying anti-Semitism, that they are therefore, you know, pro-Zionist or that they don't care. So they also throw in a, and we're against um, Islamophobia. And I, I want to be very clear. That is something that I just don't care about at all. I'm absolutely OK with them saying that. It doesn't matter to me at all. I don't need them to uh, singularly highlight um, anti-Semitism, even in a moment where anti-Semitism is, I I know what's going on behind that, and and uh, like bigger fish to fry. Of course, and, there are like, bigger fish to fry. It's just something. It's just interesting. I, I don't see this as the main crisis facing the world today. I see this as inter- as like a an interesting component. I'm and I'm not trying to correct or or or, 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 or like pass judgment on like like. The, the the process by which a lot of my feeds with like friends and relatives is like searching through like like picking apart these things and and highlighting them I, I, is again like I'm like where are we going with this what are we trying to demonstrate well, with this like like yeah. it, it, it makes me feel like yes these like there is a strain of anti-Semitism there there is like the, like this isn't fair and and I'm 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 trying like. I, 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 there is a point at which I feel like we do have to we, we do have to speak up. There is a point at which it, it, it comes to our synagogues and our, our community centers and, and, and our and cafes and like Jews are targeted where we do have to speak up. But like I I I I, I question the value and just my own kind of self care and what I want to like sit in. I'm I'm trying to avoid. Uh, I'm trying to avoid like a, a, a certain kind of, of echo chamber that I feel puts me further and further away from like like a dialogue with with where the conflict actually might actually progress to something better. I don't know. Does that make sense? I'm, it I'm, does. I'm, it, yeah. it does make sense. And I think it's where I would have sat a few weeks ago, to be honest. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I think I might be. I still read stuff on the, like to return to Avi's point about honest reporting. I, I haven't really followed that particular thing, but whenever I see something from sort of the, that general part of politics, I realize that that's, that's not any better. And yeah. I, I'm also kind of done going hat in hand to the non-Jewish world and, and, and demanding that they regard our humanity or demanding that they are polite when we grieve or demanding like I, 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 um, at the point at which I do want to take a stand, it's not a stand of like, please, I'm human. I, 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 I'm, do, I'm done with that too, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I 
you know, it's hard to sit on both sides. And I, I think to, to go back to my original point, I think when somebody genuinely means I'm against Islamophobia, great. I, I'm also, in addition to, you know, anti-Semitism and all that, when, when you can tell that it's something, but it's not working towards harmony. It's not working towards sitting with the other side when you say, yes, anti-Semitism is bad, horrible, we have to fight it. Oh, and also Islamophobia. That, that's a tagline. And if I was Muslim, I would realize that I was being tokenized there and I was being used just as a cover to say, you see, it's not just about anti-Semitism. I wouldn't like that. Um, the problem with the honest reporting approach is that there is there's really this notion that like my narrative is the only narrative above all else. And it doesn't serve right for the years that they exist. Like I said, between these these conflagrations, right, it doesn't serve either side to have somebody you can go and say, this is the only narrative that exists. My narrative is the one that has to work. And, and your narrative has to be put down almost by definition. I, I, I agree. And, 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 you know, I was reading, uh, you know, one of my many uh, detractors in the Canadian media, Terry Glavin, had a piece that I thought was a pretty, a pretty uh, persuasive and fiery piece of editorial writing in the Post today. It was just going on about... Uh, you know the the embrace the gleeful embrace of Hamas that we're witnessing happen and and you know um the kind of cheering on of the paragliders and the things that are being said at these protests that are not just pro Palestine but they're pro Hamas and they're explicitly anti- I'm like yeah like yeah he's right about all this it, 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 where it ended though was just in this place of just outright condemnation uh and uh I don't know where we go from there. Like, I don't know. I like, you know, that the, the, there can be no, there can be no sentence given. There can be no justification. Like, I'm not trying to justify what Hamas did, but like, why did it happen? Was it bound to happen? Something like that? Will it happen again if things are left in that state? Like, those are the only questions that ultimately matter. Mm-hmm. But, but what he was asserting was to ask those questions, given the level of atrocity, uh, is is uh, uh, out of the box. Is is to justify atrocities? Can't do it. This is a hateful Jew hating movement, and to hell with them. And where does that just leaves us where we were on October six, waiting for the next one? I uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, and uh, I thank you, Jesse, for coming on. Mazel tov on your ten uh, year anniversary. Um, with Canada Land. If you have to support one one media organization in Canada, you should support the CJN. But if you support two, you should also support uh, Canada Land as well. You've got a lot of really smart listeners, and I'd love it if they checked out Canada Land. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Jesse. Great to talk with you. And now it's time the podcast for our Nachas. Phoebe, is there anything that's been giving you Nachas this week? Um. Well... As usual, I have to dig because my life is work and little children. And then after they go to sleep, doing some good, good old fashioned doom scrolling and reading about how the world is falling apart. But sometimes I try to take a break from that. And I did so via a New York Times article um, by the uh, very good fashion writer, Vanessa Friedman. I don't know if Vanessa Friedman's Jewish or not, and I don't really care, called uh, Carolyn Bissett Kennedy Ghost Influencer. Um, and it's about how Carolyn Bissett Kennedy is kind of, despite having died tragically at age 33, um, in a plane crash, um, in 1999, so not last week, um, her look is really the look of the moment and people love it. And fashion brands are trying to sort of emulate it. And sometimes in these kind of like ghoulish ways of like the paparazzi shots of her, they recreate in some kind of fashion spread and people are, anyway have mixed feelings about this in the comments and the comments to this article are hilarious, sort of inadvertently hilarious. All these people who really miss the elegance of a bygone age and the bygone age is like 1997. And I'm thinking, what are they even talking about? But it's, it's just very entertaining, but it's actually, uh, she, she dressed pretty well, you know, like that, no joke like this. I read through this article and the outfits, uh, they would kind of hold up now. And that's, um, it was a long time ago, so it's kind of interesting. And um, it was just very diverting. And um, and also just, yes, it's bleak, it's death and all of that. But, like, it's not as bleak as perhaps some, uh, you know, all, all death is sad. But, but, like, it's a less bleak story than um, everything else. So I got a kick out of that. Um, I did my newsletter, non-CJN newsletter on it, because I just found it, that the comments to this extremely um, entertaining. Anyway, yeah. How about I, you, Abby? Uh, 
the retroness is uh, is real, and it's I'm uh, old but enough. But it doesn't like look said, retro. Really. That's the thing. That that's well, look, look just like they look like they all come from Aritzia. The problem is that we are in that moment, and uh, you know we were listening to sublime in the car this morning and I did the mental math for when sublime came out and realized that when sublime was out and I was listening to it, the music that that would have been in terms of time difference, Mm -hmm. um, was like fifties music. And I'm like, Oh boy, that was now like music, not even like the Beatles. Oh, (laughs) I think it was, no, I think it was early sixties. I think that's may have been, I was trying to remember anyways. Yeah. Um, my Nachas. Um, so I was, I went back and I reread, uh, Amos Oz's small little essay, uh, how to cure a fanatic, I believe it was called. It came out in 2001 in the wake of, uh, 9-11. Um, and while I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the stuff that he says in there, he has some very, very important points and beautiful points. And one of the points that he makes is, um, one of the hallmarks of a non-fanatic is the ability to laugh and the ability to often laugh even at your own, um, you know, at tragedies sometimes in, internally, and I'm not going to make jokes about the tragedy. Um, I, I was very heartened that almost immediately in the, you know, in the past few weeks, um, the memes that were coming out were actually kind of funny and interesting, you know, like, um, you know, there was something going around the internet about how like this guy shows up at the uh, airport in New York with like 54 duffel bags of medical supplies for like, you know, getting on, getting on the plane and going to Israel and the a security guy looks at him and goes, eh, did you pack all of this yourself? Uh, where are you going? Is this all for fam- personal? And like that the security there is going on or when Biden went to visit Israel, somebody asked if he had his dad's number because they have a small package to send to Israel. Could they maybe, uh, you know, could he maybe carry it along with him? And like the ability that we have been having to find moments of joy in this tragedy um, is heartening. And uh, I look forward to hearing more of those and, and, and seeing more of that humanity um, in the uh, in the coming weeks and months. I agree with you. Humor, always good. Um, well, mostly, not always. No, no I mean, uh, always, it needs to be, not not in all contexts. I don't mean, like, <laughs> leap into some sort of conflict zone and be like, so, Ovaltine. Why do they call it Ovaltine? Ovaltine. Like, <laughs> round anyway. team. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. um, but yes, I think we are in agreement on this. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending October 28th, Shabbat Parashat Lech Lecha. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CGN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the CJN.ca.